you uh, bow with me? Let's pray. Father, it's an amazing thought to think that once we become a child of you through Jesus Christ, that there are no orphans. There's no way that we can be snatched out of your hand, as Jesus taught us, that if we're the one wandering sheep, he's going to go to the hills to get us. That as Ephesians 1 says, that our salvation is like a, a guarantee, the Holy Spirit sealing us, guaranteeing our inheritance. And Father, that's an amazing thought. And we thank you that your grace is that strong, that it's that robust, that it has that much grit and teeth. We thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We thank you too, Lord, for your word and that you've given us your word in propositional form that we might understand you with our minds, then fall in love with you with our hearts, and then obey you and live for you with our wills. So may we do that now. After being set up, hopefully, by our worship and being together, may we be attentive and attuned and transformed even by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, uh, Philip Yancey, who's one of my favorite writers, has written a few books with a guy by the name of Dr. Paul Brand in which he uh, develops a close link between the physical world of our bodies and the corresponding spiritual realities. And one of the most profound and fascinating things they point out in these books are, concerns this whole idea of, of pain and the power of pain. They know that there's not one square millimeter of the human body, not one, that in some way does not utilize pain in a good way. Yancey and Brand point out in their books that, that really there's an incredible complexity as well as a lot of profundity in the way that our bodies utilize this idea of pain. So, for instance, they point out that a speck of dirt on your thumb, between your thumb and forefinger, would not cause any pain, but a speck of dirt in your eye is excruciating, right? And we realize then that the different parts of our bodies are more sensitive than pain than others. They further point out that internal organs such as your bowels or your kidneys have no receptors to warn against cutting or burning. Why would they need to? But they show acute sensitivity to swelling and expansion. And so we realize that our bodily parts are sensitive to different kinds of pain as well. Or how about when certain parts of our bodies lack various pain receptors, like parts of the heart, we find that they borrow other pain cells. This is known as referred pain, referred pain, which is why heart attack victims many times don't feel it in the center of their chest. They feel pain in their arm or in their shoulders. It's amazing how our body works with pain. We've even found that the body's pain system is so sophisticated that it, can, that it can ramp up to hypersensitivity mode when needed, which is why a sore thumb always seems to get in the way, but then it can in turn turn the volume way down on pain when in an emergency, which is why soldiers cite that they don't feel pain immediately in battle, but only afterwards. I mean, truly, folks, think about it. Our bodies make amazing and complex use of this thing called pain. And what Yancey and Brand are trying to get us to see it is that this idea of pain is certainly not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. And that without it, our bodies would be vulnerable to all kinds of assaults that we'd be unaware of. In fact, listen to how Yancey says it. I love this. He says, and I quote, pain is the most effective language the body can use to draw attention to something important. And he's right. Pain is the most effective language that our bodies can use to draw attention to something important. And so they point out that, and we all know this, that one of the worst diseases known to humankind is leprosy, where the pain receptors don't work anymore. And so a leper is left without feeling when it comes to pain to warn of impending danger. And so when he gets a cut or a burn or all kinds of abuse on their body, their limbs literally fall off because of lack of pain. 
I mean, if nothing else, our bodies teach us how good and useful pain really is. Without it, we'd be immobilized, even destroyed. And then along comes Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers. This book that we've been studying this summer and this fall now at Scottsdale Bible, 1 Peter. And I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, but one of the primary messages throughout this entire book in all five chapters deals with this issue of pain. But obviously not physical pain, no. Peter's more after relational, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual pain, what we might simply label life pain. And we all know what we're talking about there. The kind of pain that happens when things don't go our way in life. The kind of pain that hits our emotions and our, and our minds when we have a relational breakdown or a job disappointment or emotions that seem out of control or even bonehead decisions that we tend to make in our lives. We've all experienced this. It's life pain. Pain that flows from our circumstances and our experiences, even our own decisions, and affects our emotions and the way that we think. This is the kind of pain that Peter is talking about. And by the time he gets to the end of chapter 4, he's at the summit of talking to us about pain. In other words, throughout this entire series, and we haven't talked about it overtly, but you probably picked up on it, Peter's been leading us through the valley of all different kinds of pain. So he talked to us in chapter 1 about personal pain when we are let down by others and being persecuted by others for our faith. And then in chapter 2 he talks to us about the kind of societal pain that we have and submitting to authorities and slaves to masters and things like that. And then in chapter 3 he's talking about relational pain that you get in marriage and in other contexts in, in your life. I mean the whole thing has just been charting different kinds of pain. And then we get to the end of chapter 4 here and he's got us at the mountaintop and get this, he wants to give us now a bird's eye view of the valley of pain. And like Yancey and Brand, he wants to show us why pain is not all that bad and that what God might even be up to something in the midst of our pain. And so I want to read about it with you. If you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. It's the next segment in our study here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And we're going to be reading up through the end of the chapter. And just listen to what he says and see if you can get this bird's eye view of what pain in our lives is all about. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone does suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let, the glory, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if he begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Wow, what an amazing passage, folks, this is. And so notice the first and most obvious thing that Peter is telling us here, and this is point one in your outline, is this, and that is that as a follower of Jesus living in this fallen world, you're going to experience pain. That as a follower of Jesus, if you are one here this morning, in this fallen world, you can count on this, you're going to experience pain. And I know how some of you think, you're thinking, well, duh, Jamie. Like, of course you're going to experience pain at times in this world. I mean, tell me something I don't already know. And yet what you might not realize, and you don't want to miss, is how and in what ways Peter tells us this here. 
Because, folks, when you look closely at this passage, what you begin to see is that in a very real way, as Peter's looking over the valley of pain, that he's giving us here a full-blown theology of pain that does nothing but help us finally get what living in a fallen world, as we try to follow Jesus, is going to entail. And so in a nutshell, he tells us this about pain. This is his theology, if you will, on pain here. And that is, look up here on the screen, that pain is universal, multi-sourced, no fun, but very purposeful. Man, if you don't take anything else away today, write that down. That pain, what Peter's telling us, is universal, multi-sourced, no fun, but very purposeful. That's in a nutshell his theology of pain here. So notice that he begins by telling us that for followers of Jesus, pain is universal. He says there in verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, he's saying what's happening to you, this painful and fiery thing that you're experiencing, is not shocking. God is not taken off guard. Nobody in heaven is watching and saying, I can't believe that's happening to so-and-so. He's saying none of what you're experiencing surprises God, the angels, anybody in heaven, or anybody who's ever written in the Bible. What Peter is telling us here is that pain and trials are universal to all followers of Jesus. As Wayne Grudem says, commenting on this passage in his commentary, he says, pain is a normal part of the Christian life. Or as Peter Davids says, another expert on 1 Peter, he says, and I quote, all the careful and considerate living possible will not prevent suffering and pain. I mean, if that doesn't convince you folks, think about it. Remember back in chapter 1, we learned that Peter is writing this book here to four provinces in the entire area of Asia Minor. Asia Minor. And now we know from understanding of history at that time that he's writing then to at least 10 major large cities in Asia Minor. I mean, it's a very broad-based letter. And so he's telling each of them, each within their own unique circumstances and settings, that they're all going to experience pain and to not be shocked or surprised at this. So what do we take from that? It's a universal truism that followers of Jesus are going to experience pain in this world. That's the first thing Peter makes clear. And then notice further that Peter tells us, this, tells us that this pain is also multi-sourced, meaning it's going to come from various places in our lives. He says in verse 13 that we all share in Christ's sufferings. Do you see that there? We all share in Christ's sufferings. And think about what you know of the sufferings of Jesus when he was on this earth. I mean, think about what you know from the Gospels. And I simply got to ask you, didn't Jesus suffer from like multiple sources in his life? I mean, go through the list. He was let down by close friends. He was considered loony by his family. He was verbally berated by fellow clergy. He lived a nomadic life at times, not even going to have a place to lay his head. He experienced profound disappointment and frustration over entire cities and cultures going down a destructive path. He had major conflict with political leaders. He was tempted and hassled by the evil one. And we haven't even gotten to the cross yet, <laughs> where he suffered physically for you and for me, as well as spiritually in his soul for you and me. I mean, in short, don't miss, Jesus experienced what I call the four pillars of pain. Pain from others, pain from this world, pain from living in the flesh, having a body, and pain from spiritual powers that were after his very soul. Others, the world, flesh, and the evil one. These are the four pillars. And what Peter is saying is that you and me, as followers of Jesus, will share in Christ's sufferings. 
The four pillars, multiple sources, just like Jesus did. And so maybe now you're beginning to see why Peter can say so confidently that pain is universal. I mean, none of us are going to escape it. As we're going to see, I don't think we want to escape it when you realize what God is up to in it. But before we get to that, please do realize that this world is not our home. We're living in hostile territory, the Bible paints the picture of, and it's going to be painful, and it's going to come from all angles to you and to me. And so that's why even here this morning, some of you have physical ailments. Some of you are bogged down by relational rift. Some of you have kids that are letting you down or a job that stinks or emotions that are crashing or spiritual attack and disillusionment. And we all share in Christ's suffering. Pain is universal and multi-sourced for any of us that choose to follow him. And then continuing on in our look at Peter's theology of pain, notice he also tells us, and I like this one, that it's no fun, right? For those of you who ever think the Bible's not realistic, he's telling us here it's no fun. You say, well, where's that? Look at verse 12 there. He calls this pain that we have fiery trials. Man, does that sound fun to you? Fiery trials. I mean, simply the fact that, that there are parts of our lives that when we're on pain, Peter's saying it's on fire. It's like scorching your very life, scorching your very soul, and it hurts. I mean, this is the same word used to describe the burning of Babylon in, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 9. I mean, it's not a very positive thing Peter's painting a picture of here. It's like a no fun, painful type of thing. And then as if this were not enough, look at verses 15, 16, and 19. Three times, Peter uses the word suffer. He says, suffer, suffer as a Christian, suffer according to God's will. It's a Greek word, pasco. It's an interesting word that literally means to experience a sensation. Isn't that interesting? Experience a sensation. It's used over 40 times in the New Testament, and it can be used either positively, like a positive sensation, or a negative sensation. But check this out. It's only used once in over 40 times in the New Testament to refer to a positive experience. All the other times are referring to negative, painful experiences. And Peter uses this word 11 times, and every one of them is negative. Don't miss what he's trying to tell us there by using that word suffer. It's a very experiential, feeling-oriented word. And Peter's trying to tell you, pain is no fun. It's full of pain. It's painful. That's what he's telling us. So I love how Tony Snow, the former White House press secretary for President Bush, and a man who recently lost a three-year battle with cancer and died at the age of 53, said it. This is great. He said, and I quote, we, we all want lives of simple, predictable ease, smooth, even trails as far as the eye can see, but God likes to go off-road. You like that? God likes to go off-road. When I thought about that, I thought, you know, I kind of like to go off-road too sometimes until it gets painful, right? Ever been off-road? It's bumpy. It's full of pitfalls. You can get in a lot of trouble off-road. It can be very trying and difficult. That's what Tony Snow's telling us. Is it for the follower of Christ? And he was one. God likes to go off-road, and it's not always easy. So track Peter's progression here. Universal, multi-sourced, no fun. And lastly, and this brings it all together, he tells us that pain for the follower of Jesus is very purposeful. It's very purposeful. And so after laying out this universal, multi-source, no-fun progression of pain, look at what he goes on to say about all this in verses 13 to 14 of 1 Peter 4. And he says, But rejoice, insofar as you share in the Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice 
and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So do you get the sense of purpose here? (laughs) I do. I mean, twice he tells us to rejoice. This word literally means to be happy. Then he tells us to be glad. This word literally means to be exceedingly happy. And then he calls us blessed. Don't miss this. All in the context of experiencing pain. And if you're like me, I sit there in my home office and I go, what? I mean, you're, you're talking about pain and you're telling us to be glad? You're telling us to rejoice? You're calling us blessed in the midst of talking about pain? What's gotten into you, Peter? What are you talking about there? I mean, how can you say this? How can Peter be this joyful, this happy, this blessed by pain and suffering? The answer is simple when you understand what he's saying here. And that is because Peter was absolutely 100% convinced that God was in complete control of his life. And he was 100% convinced that God was and is up to something, even in and through our pain. As Rick Warren says, God never wastes a hurt. And Peter knew this. And it made all the difference in how he approached and made sense of his pain. You see, folks, when he says that in and because of pain, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, don't miss what he's getting at there. I mean, think about it, those of you who know your Bible. Paul tells us it was filled with the spirit. Jesus said the spirit was going to come to us, make his home in us, and abide in us. But only Peter, Peter's the only one who tells us that the Holy Spirit rests upon us in our pain. What's that about? It's fascinating. This word rest here means to settle on something or someone, but to settle in such a way as to bring calm and control to one's life. It's the same word used in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, Greek Old Testament, to describe rest on the Sabbath day, purposeful, God-infused kind of rest. It's the same word Jesus used to tell his disciples that he wanted to take them away and rest after they had been engaged in lots of ministry activity, purposeful, in the middle of God's will, kind of rest. You get the idea. This is the kind of rest that reminds us that God is in control of our lives. Not our circumstances, not our past mistakes, not our runaway culture, but God is in control. And Peter is telling us here that God's Spirit rests on us even in the midst of this universal, multi-source, no-fun kind of pain And because His Spirit rests on us, we know that there's nothing that could come our way that He is not working in and through for our purposes, our benefit, and His glory. And please see, folks, for Peter, this made all the difference. It made this universal, multi-source, no-fun kind of pain purposeful. In fact, it made it so purposeful that he found joy, gladness, and blessing smack dab in the center of it all. And it changes everything once you get this. Uh, there's a gal by the name of Nancy Kennedy, who's the uh, religion editor and feature writer for the Citrus County Chronicle, a daily newspaper in Florida. Most of you have never heard of it. But she also regionally writes on some blogs and has a, a small radio program and also uh, is an author and a retreat speaker. And a while back, I was reading one of the blogs that she was writing on, and she wrote something that, that touched me, and I think it's going to touch you as well. It's exactly what Peter's talking about here. She writes, I'm sitting in yet another hospital waiting room. Ever since my husband Barry first underwent open heart and quadruple bypass surgery 15 months ago, I've been in this waiting room, or one just like it, more times than I can count on one hand, waiting for him to come out of the operating room. In a little more than a year's time, my vocabulary has increased to include words and phrases such as aneurysm, atrial fib, and EP study with ablation. 
They all mean I have to put on a cheery face, kiss Barry goodbye, and promise I won't worry about him or forget to eat lunch or lock the garage door at night while he's in the hospital again. She says, with all Barry's surgeries and procedures, we've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. One of the worst in our 32 years of marriage. Yet ironically, it's also turned out to be the very best. For instance, I learned just how deeply Barry loves me. As he was all prepped and waiting to go into surgery to repair his aortic aneurysm, Barry looked at my friend Tara, who was waiting with us, and said, make sure Nancy takes care of herself. Promise me, or else I'll worry. Nancy says he wasn't worried about being sliced open again. He was worried about me. She says, I came to faith in Christ three years after Barry and I were married, and for almost 30 years I prayed about my husband's relationship with the Lord. Then the day of Barry's open-heart surgery, he told me that if he died, I'd see him again because he had accepted Jesus as a Savior. He prayed with me. He prayed with a friend. He prayed with his surgeon. Barry hasn't stopped praying. He prays with me every day. What I'd asked God for all these years to heal heal the spiritual rift in my marriage, to bring my husband and me close, God had given. He performed heart surgery on both of us, ripping us apart and knitting us back together again. Now listen close, folks. She says, Barry and I talk often about this past year, how it's been awful and awfully good. We wouldn't wish this kind of year on anyone and wouldn't want to go through it again, but we're glad that it happened. We thank God for the good days and the bad because in all our days, God's held us both securely in his grip. We've known God's incredible kindness to us. Our hearts are in his hands. And she wraps up by saying, we've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year, and I praise God for it. And all I can tell you is that this woman gets it. She gets what it's all about when it comes to understanding pain, not wanting it, mind you, but realizing what God is up to in the midst of it. And she trusts him about this. I mean, folks, remember the vision of our church to be a community of Christ followers who are marked by an unwavering faith and an unconditional love. What is unwavering faith if it's not the kind of faith that trusts that God is up to something in our lives no matter what? Whether it's good, whether it's bad, that he's sovereign, he's in control, and that nothing can thwart his will. As Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will and knowledge. Every hair on your head is numbered. Why do you think he's surprised by your pain? He's not. But as we're going to see as we wrap up here in a few minutes, he wants you. And he wants you to trust him in the midst of all of his pain. But you won't if you don't understand it. And folks, I can't tell you how many times I've seen followers of Jesus go through very difficult and painful trials only to realize in hindsight or sometimes even right in the middle of it all how good and sovereign God is as they watch him move and mold and shape and reveal and refine them in and through the fire. In fact, I used uh, verse 12 earlier, that fiery trial thing to to show you that, that pain is painful, right? And that it's no fun. But the reality is, is that in the context of Peter there, he's actually playing off an image out of the Proverbs in which they talk about the refining fire and how fire was used to refine and purify gold. And the fact that that God allows us fire to come into our lives because he knows what he wants to do in our lives. He's refining us. Make no mistake. God's up to something in our pain. It's very purposeful. And though we don't wish it on anybody, we realize that without it, we'd never become the people that he intends us to be. And so once you get this, the only question becomes, well, what do we do with this? I mean, how do we respond to this? It's one thing to know it and to say, yeah, 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 I guess God's in control of our pain, but what do I do with that? What do I take home with that? 
And in the short time we have remaining, I want to wrap up by sharing with you two responses. One of them is going to be your initial response and the other one for the long haul that Peter gives us here. Two things that we can take home and do if you want to get the most spiritual mileage out of your pain. You ready for this? So here's number two on your outline, and that is initially respond to your pain with joy, and you do that by identifying with Jesus. In other words, initially respond to your pain by choosing joy and identifying with Jesus. And the logic here is almost flawless. And that is that if God is up to something and allowing our pain to come into our lives as followers of Jesus, and he is, and if he's still 100% sovereign and in control of our lives, and he is, and if you believe that nothing can thwart his plan and that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, and nothing can't, then why wouldn't you choose joy? Why wouldn't you say, well, yeah, I might be going through the bummer time now, but guess what? He's on the throne. He's my Lord. He's in my life. And the worst that could happen, worst case scenario, is that I die and go to heaven. And that place is a lot better than this dump, right? And, and, and so think about the mindset that Peter's trying to get us in here. He's saying, when you think about it rationally and logically, you've got a real reason to choose joy. And notice that I say very clearly there, choose joy. Because I said last week, there are many people in our world and even in our churches today who have fallen prey to what I call this victim mindset. You know what I'm talking about? People see themselves as a sole product of their circumstances, their environment, or a product of their upbringing or those around them. And though it is true that we're all influenced by these things, of course we are, please see, we still have lots of choice as to how we respond to the things around us. And so in the end, all of us can avoid the paralysis of being victims by realizing that we do have a choice. And Peter tells you here to choose joy. Again, look at verse 13 again, but rejoice as so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. And rejoice and be glad, because His glory someday is going to be revealed. Years ago, I, I remember, I think I told you guys a little bit about this story, and, and I won't belabor it right now, but, but, but a few years back, there was a gal in the front pew of my church in Cleveland that um, was named Marlena. And she's written a book telling us all about her story. And uh, it, it's a story of a woman who, well, at the time a child, who was 11 years old, and they were on a family vacation, and some... Uh, older teenage boys, 18 or 19, came and had dinner with them, and they seemed very friendly, but later that night, one of them raped Marlena when she was 11 years old. And so as you can imagine, the trauma of being raped as an 11-year-old, and they went and found the police and went to the hospital and did all they could there, but they, the men had taken off and they never found them again. And because this was in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, um, the, the family didn't know what to do, and so they just told Marlena, just let's not talk about it, let's put behind it, behind us. And as you can imagine, that didn't work. So Marlena grown up to be a, a woman who um, struggled deeply with hatred toward men, had a significant weight problem because that would keep men away, and uh, just dealt with a lot of the emotional trauma of that even into her adult years. And she writes in her book how she eventually uh, found an incredible amount of healing through a relationship with Christ. I mean, just an incredible amount of healing. But as you can imagine, she's probably going to struggle with the after effects, the aftershock of that for the rest of her life. And so on this particular Sunday, I saw her in church there, and she was worshiping God like Jesus was coming back tomorrow, and, and, and she had tears flowing down her face. And I can always tell as a pastor there's going to be tears of joy and tears of sadness, and these were tears of sadness, and, and I knew she was hurting that day. So after service and everybody cleared out, I just said to her, I know you're hurting today, and I gave her a hug and told her I'd pray for her. And she never told me what she was hurting about that day, but she looked at me and she blew me away when, when she put a smile on her face through the tears and said, I am hurting today, but I choose joy. She said, I choose joy. How can a woman 
who was raped when she was 11 years old, whose parents told her to deny it, who grew up to hate men and dealt with a weight problem, but now had found some healing and a wonderful marriage and, and found Christ. How could she choose joy when that pain comes back? It's easy because she understands what her faith is about. She understands the one that she trusts. She understands what it means to have a living, organic relationship with Jesus Christ. And that she can choose joy because he made her that way. And he empowers her by his spirit to be able to do that. It doesn't take away all the pain. It just gets you through the pain as you choose joy. Don't ever forget, folks, joy is what births hope. And joy is birthed from faith. So you want to link hope and faith in your life. You're going to learn to find joy. It's the first thing that Peter tells us to do. And then lastly, there's another thing he calls us to do. And this is more of a long-haul thing, something that we need to continually do over and over and over again. And quite frankly, it's what separates the men from the boys and the women from the gals when it comes to dealing with pain. And here it is. And that is that over the long haul, respond to your pain with absolute abandonment to God. Now we're getting somewhere. You want to know what will make you an ardent follower of Jesus Christ, one who has the character befitting of one who knows Christ, learn to respond to your pain with absolute abandonment. Look at how Peter wraps up this passage here in verse 19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So again, don't miss the logic here. He's saying that if indeed it's true that God is 100% in control of your life, and it is, to the point that we could even say that our suffering and pain is part of his will for us, is what Peter's suggesting here, then it only makes sense that our highest goal in our pain should be to abandon ourselves each moment of each day to him. And I love how Peter says it when he says, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. What a great phrase. He's basically saying there, entrust it. That word entrust is an interesting word. It carries with the idea that you place something before someone or something for safekeeping. I like how one author says it. He says, and I quote, to hand over something of value to the care of another. So don't miss this. It assumes that what you are handing over is valuable to you, like your soul, and that the one you are handing it over to is worthy of keeping it safe, like God. And put this together. You're in pain. You realize that God is up to something in your pain. So your best choice is to hand over your life to him once again because there's no better place for your life to be than in the hands of God. And so what Peter calls us to as he wraps up this discussion is to abandon ourselves to him, to lay it all down and give ourselves over to God our maker and our redeemer for in doing so our lives are exactly where they need to be. That's the call that he gives to you and me. I want to wrap up by telling you a true story. Something that's happened to me, as you'll see a thread throughout my entire life, that uh, acts as a very powerful illustration of what Peter's talking about here. As many of you know, I'm 44 years old. I was born in 1964. In that year, my grandmother, who was a uh, minister's wife, was on a trip to the Holy Land. And she knew that my mother was pregnant with me, and it's the most touching thing she ever did for me. She bought me an olive wood New Testament when she was in the Holy Land. Just a little New Testament like this that had a hard olive wood cover on it with a, big, with a little cross, and it was one of these King James little New Testaments, a very treasured possession of mine when I was growing up. 
And as you can imagine, my parents didn't let me have it when I was a little kid because I would have lost it or done something goofy with it. But when I became a teenager in my late teens, they presented it to me, and I carried it, I carried it with me. Every, but everywhere I moved, it stayed with me. It was a treasured possession. And then uh, when I was in college and we were moving over the summer one summer, we were cleaning out the attic, and, and I found another little Bible. And it kind of looked like this one. It was a little red, old, old, old Bible. And when I opened it up, it was a Gideon's Bible from 1942. And in the back of it, we had that little sinner's prayer that you signed, and my dad had signed it. When he was eight years old, my dad had been accosted by the Gideons or something like that, and, and, and he signed this Bible. And, it, and as many of you know, I, I, I've gone on record saying my dad is professedly not an evangelical Christian. So when I found this, I thought, I got ammunition now. And so I, I came upstairs and I was like, Dad, what, what's this? And he kind of got this wry smile on his face and he goes, I knew someday you'd find that. <laughs> and it created a wonderful discussion point for me and him in the convening years. So I had these two Bibles, one my Olivewood Bible from being a child and, or from my birth, and then, then this one I found in the college days. And, and, and again, they became very, two very treasured possessions to me. In the early 1990s, we uh, moved to Detroit, Michigan, where we pastored. Kim and I were I was, I was on staff at a church there. We started raising our family there. And uh, we lived in a little 1,200-square-foot bungalow uh, in one of the suburbs of Detroit, one of our favorite houses we've ever lived in. All three of our kids were, were raised in that house, and, uh, and, and, and it was just a wonderful place. And I didn't have many books back then, and I didn't have a big house, but I had this little built-in bookshelf in my bedroom upstairs, and I'd place all of my, uh, my prized possessions on there. So I had, you know, trinkets and, and my prized books that just laid there, and each morning I'd, I'd wake up and I'd see them, and it was kind of my little area. And uh, one day I came home, and I, and I went out for a run, and when I got back, I came upstairs, and there was Abby. She was about three years old. And, uh, and there was Paul. He was about, oh, just a little bit over one, one and a half years old. And uh, Abby still had a little pacifier in her mouth, just cute as a button. And, uh, and they were sitting there, and they had grabbed both these Bibles off the shelf, and they had torn them to pieces. Both of them. They had ripped the olive wood right off the cover and broke it in half, and they had ripped the pages out of the Bibles, and they're just laughing like two little kids can do. Uh, sorry, Abby. And, uh, and, and, and I just... I, I almost passed out. I just sat down right there, and I sat there with them, and as you can imagine, my heart was just broken in pieces. I just thought, oh my gosh, they're irreplaceable. They're heirlooms. They're, they meant so much to me, and, uh, and as they were still laughing there and all that, and I sat there about five minutes, I, my initial response was, was to kill them, right? You know, because... <laughs> I actually envision, you know, grabbing them both by their ankles and hanging them out the window like in Goodfellas or something like that, you know, and just, uh, I, I just couldn't believe it. But then sanity hit me within about 10 seconds, and I thought, you know, this isn't their fault. I mean, there'll be some punishment, but they're, they're toddlers. They don't know any better. And, um, and I got up, and I grabbed the pieces of all of this, and then it hit me, and it's hit me a lot over the years, that there really was my fault that they got into those Bibles. Now, now, why is it? Simple, Parenting 101. I had placed those Bibles way too low, amen? I had entrusted them to a very low source, and ever since then, I've learned to entrust my possessions at a much higher level, right? So if you were to go to my home office right now, you will see my most prized possessions are on the way top of my bookshelf, where even um, who's ever cleaning the house cannot get to them, where they collect dust. I've learned to entrust my most prized things to a very high level. And here's the deal. I find that a lot of Christians, 
tend to entrust their pain to very low-lying places. Have you ever noticed that? We really do. I mean, think about what we do with our pain. We buy a book. We watch Oprah. We watch a PBS special. We go to a friend. We might even seek out a counselor. Um, we might try to find some type of a distraction, like buying things or a hobby or something like that. Not bad things to do. Nothing that I just mentioned is necessarily a bad thing to do. Some of them might even be helpful. But don't miss, they're, they're low-lying places. They are. What God says is that there's one very high-lying place that you can entrust your pain to, where, get this, nothing can get to it. Not man, not the evil one. Nothing can get to your pain when you entrust it to God, when you entrust to Him. He says, my place is a safekeeping place. He might not take away all your pain. Don't hear me say that. That's a lie. But the reality is, is that what He will do is keep it safe. And when you trust Him at that high-level place, when you put it on the top shelf where He is, what He says is that you're smack dab in the center of my will. I will keep that pain in safekeeping. That's the kind of God that you and I serve. So as we go here in just a minute after I pray, can I encourage you to do something? Don't keep your pain at a low-level place. Abandon yourself to God. Put it high up and watch what He does with it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that there's nothing that we can experience this side of heaven that can ultimately uh, keep us from you. And what an amazing, amazing truth that is. The Father, we have records of people who went through the horrors of World War II and came out saying, as Corey Ten Boom did, that there is no pit so deep that Jesus Christ is not deeper still. Father, we know that you're trustworthy. And so God, God, as we've dealt with this theology of pain here this morning, I guess as there are many of us who resonate with it, we're all dealing with something here in our lives right now that at the very least is frustrating, at the very most is a real pain in our lives. And Father, I pray that as we respond with joy, and I pray, God, that as we respond with abandonment to you and giving our lives over to you once again, that we would find that great purpose that you have in it for us. And so, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us both the intellectual and emotional and willful uh, tools that we need to live for you. And so we go now in the matchless name of Jesus, and the whole church says together, amen. God bless you, and have a great day.